Everybody. Welcome to all you who are here in person. How you like the new setup here? Pretty kind of interesting, right? We'll see how it's going. Uh, we'll see if any of our tech works today because that was all run all differently through the ceiling. And so if you're joining us online, I hope you're able to view this. We've been praying all week that it will actually be working. And I hope that you're blessed. Oh, how disconcerting that this I'm on the screen, huh? Isn't that terrifying? Uh, thank you, Cameron, for leading the today. This is the first time he led our adult congregation. So, so awesome. Uh, he had led our college before, and I was so stoked to have him. I was excited that he's here because such a powerful uh, worship leader. Thanks, Cameron, for leading us. All right, let's do our shouts. Uh, what do we do? We love God and we love others. And what do we say? I love God and I love you. Believe it or not, sometimes I like forget how to introduce that, even though we've said that now for maybe two and a half years, uh, but I sometimes get confused. Um, welcome to Jericho Road Church. I'm glad you joined us this morning. I know there's a thousand things you could have been doing uh, and a hundred uh, different churches you could have been at, so I'm just so thankful that you chose to join us this morning. We're in our second week of this series uh, about Titus. Uh, we've titled it Do Good, so we're looking for this thread of doing good through uh, Paul's letter to his friend Titus. Paul reminds him to do good, but not as, uh, not as in be successful, but he tells him to do good as in be godly, be good morally above all things. And last week we saw Paul give him some instructions on how to spot a good leader, how, how, what qualities God is interested in. And today we're going to actually see the opposite as Titus has to deal with some not good things that are going on and not good folks that are going on in the churches that he's trying to set up. And so we're going to pick up our study in Titus chapter 1, verse 10, if you're following along. And as always, we'll have the verses on the screen. So in Titus 1, 10, he, he had just, uh, last week he had just said like, oh, leaders should be this, and they should be this, and they're going to be awesome. And then he says here, for there are many rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. And so right away you're like, man, this is going to be a really positive message, right? Yeah, me too. I have to prepare the verses, and I'm like, that's how we're starting out? Okay. Uh, there are many rebellious people. The word rebellious here indicates someone who will not submit to God and God's order of authority. The ancient word rebellious is the negative uh, form of the word submit. So this is a, a rebellious person is someone who would not submit to God or God's desires. And these problem people, they'll make themselves known, he says, by their meaningless talk. The main idea here is that, that that was a kind of worship that produced no goodness in actual real life. The talk sounded religious, but it wasn't in fact good. Let's try to think of some modern examples. What are some things that, in our lives that, that people may say and it might make them sound religious, but it but isn't actually morally good? And I was thinking of a couple of them like, uh, if, if now it's really popular if on Facebook or someone, people will say, we're sending you positive thoughts, if you've ever seen that one. That, that sounds good, right? Like Positive thoughts are probably good to send someone. But, but they're saying that in lieu of saying, I'm going to pray for you. So my positive thoughts aren't going to help anyone. <laughs> like I, I have no power to affect anything. I, that's not what I believe. And so that sounds good to send someone a positive thought. But you know what's really morally good? To actually pray for them. That, that would be morally good and efficacious and, and, and helpful for building them up. Or, or people will say, like, I believe in a higher power. That, that, that sounds good, but, but Satan believes in a higher power. <laughs> like, so it's not like, what are you claiming to, to claim that? Or someone will say, perhaps, I'm a really spiritual person. Well, everyone's a spiritual person. We're all, we're all physical spirit dynamic. Everybody knows this. 
we're not just the physical, but we're not just the metaphysical. We're both as human beings. And so to say I'm a spiritual person, it sounds good, but it isn't actually morally anything. And so he says, you've got to watch out for those people. They have like this talk that sounds so good, but, but really it's not. The people in Crete, they could talk glibly, but all their talk was ineffective in bringing anyone one step closer to actual goodness or godliness, following God in a, in a moral sense. Now, Paul is particularly concerned. He mentions the, the people of the circumcision group. That's Jewish people. And he was particularly concerned with Jewish people who are coming to churches and coming to Christ right at this time um, because the, the folks from the Jewish background, many of them taught that acceptance before God was only possible if you had, they would say, you need that Jesus guy because they were sort of learning about Jesus, but you also have to follow the Mosaic law. And so this is a problem that showed up all the time in this ancient churches or the beginning of churches. When Jewish people came, they're like, yeah, uh, yeah, we know about this God guy. Okay, Jesus, we'll take the Jesus guy too. But let me tell you about the other God guy of the Old Testament. And they would try to add the kind of Old Testament laws onto people. They tried to persuade others that the simple story of Jesus and the cross wasn't sufficient but that they needed the subtle stories, the genealogies, the, the intricate rules of the rabbis. Further, they tried to teach them that grace was not enough. But to be really Christian, you couldn't just have grace. To be really Christian, you needed to take upon yourselves all the rules and the regulations of the Old Testament about food and washing and ceremony and law. And I get really concerned because sometimes in our churches, we say, okay, yeah, you became a Christian through grace, but what you really need is to do your X or your Y or your Z. Otherwise, so there's, we have two levels of Christians, right? Christians who are like just kind of Christian, because they. but what you really need is you need to follow these other rules, and then you'll be really a Christian. Man, that sounds awful lot like what Paul is talking about here. Now, we can understand why it might be really difficult for some of these Jewish folks as they become Christians, as they come out of Judaism, because, um, and why they might be a source for some difficulty in the churches. Because if I'm a pagan in Roman times, and I'm leaving my religion, it's like, Zeus and lightning bolts and Hermes and, and Diana and all those kind of people. I'm leaving that, that religious system. And that doesn't look at all like this Christianity thing. But for Jewish folks, they're not quite leaving God. The God of the Old Testament is still the God of the New Testament. The God of, of Adam and, and Eve and, and Abraham and Moses, he's still the God in the New Testament. And so it's easy to see why these people might be more uh, confused or even become more problems in the church because they take some of the things that they've known their whole life and they try to drag those things into the church. Now, most of us aren't Jewish, right? Most of us aren't coming out of Judaism. Uh, just because I'm white doesn't mean I was ever Jewish, so not me either. And so most of us aren't coming that place, but, but I wonder if, if Christians, if, if we have some cultural baggage that we drag in with us. So it might not be religious baggage, but it might be cultural baggage because all of us have cultural backgrounds, an upbringing which informs and shapes how we understand the world. And understanding how our background shapes our view of Christianity is important, especially if it has the power to cause us to see certain things wrongly. Or to become like these folks who are saying, oh, these things are saying, you've got to do this, you have this extra thing, you have to have this thing. And sometimes I wonder if we've done that culturally. So let's just get a tiny bit uncomfortable for a second. 
and I'm going to ask you to participate a little bit by raise of hands. How would you feel, now in all honesty, how would you feel this morning if I came to church and I was wearing flip-flops and shorts and I was going to give the message? Now we're going to have different opinions on this and it's okay. How many people, that would make you feel slightly uncomfortable? That would feel like slightly not good if I was wearing shorts and you know, the, all the guys wearing shorts and sandals raise their hand, right? <laughs> Is there a sense where that, that just doesn't seem right? Like, oh, that seems maybe a little too casual, right? That would be an added rule. There's no sort of Bible passage that would indicate anything like that. Or how would you feel about, you know, we have pets in the park coming up, but, but how would you feel if instead of pets at the park, our church had an outing to a winery? Our next outing is an outing to a winery. How many people think that's, that would be awesome and it feels really comfortable and acceptable? <laughs> our alcoholics do. All right. How about uh, how many people are uncomfortable with that? That just doesn't seem quite right to to have a have a outing at a winery. How many people think that that's not okay for church, but it's okay if I personally go to a winery? That feels more comfortable, right? So as long as we don't do it at church, but we do it personally, that's fine. So then, what have we done? We we've just separated the sacred and the secular, right? I have my personal life and I have my church thing, and they're different. So my Christianity, in order to be Christian, I have to maybe not like wineries almost, right? That, that's nowhere in the Bible. Jesus loves wineries. He creates them, right? He's, he created water to wine at his first miracle. How about this one? What if your kids just said, hi, Sam, to me on Sunday morning, all right? Uh, is Kellen in here? Kellen, say hi, Sam. Oh, hi, Kellen. Good to see you. Now, his parents are like, <clears throat> it's like we do this with our kids, right? We're like, hey, call mommy Hedgen. Do that. Say, hey, Hedgen, Hedgen. And our kids are like, no, no, no. And we're like, do it, do it. They're like, hey, Hedgen. And they're just like, don't you ever say that again. You know, like, it is pretty funny to kind of goad your kids to do that. How, how many parents would feel a little uncomfortable if their kid just said, hey, Sam, like that? Any parents would feel a little uncomfortable with that? That seems kind of weird. Uh, some of my... Uh, 10, 15 year ago students are here and they still say, hi, Mr. Tomsick. They can't get out of, they can't possibly say Sam or you know, even Pastor Sam, they're stuck in this other thing. And so what we've done is we've then created, like, uh, because of a respect that we want culturally, we somehow have made it like, oh, that's appropriate to make sure you call the pastor that, otherwise, yeah, it's somehow wrong if we don't call the pastor by his title or something like that. So we've added additional titles and a positional difference between pastors and regular people, right? Again, sacred versus secular. Listen to this one. This is a reality. I, this literally happened. Last time I was at VBS, I spoke on the Monday and the Friday. And on Monday, I told the kids uh, that uh, after I spoke to them, I said, when I'm finished praying, what I want you to say when I'm done praying is, I want you to say, oh, yeah, not amen. And so I did the prayer, you know, da-da-da, pray. And we all prayed it, and they said, oh, yeah, because I told them, if you say, oh, yeah, that means you're agreeing with the prayer that I just prayed. Now, that's literally what the word amen means. Amen means I agree or I concur or uh, my, my heart is the same as that. That's what the word amen means. But if I told you from now on, you know, your kids don't have to end their prayers with amen. They can end their prayer with, oh, yeah. How many people feel really comfortable having that be the new prayer ending? Not a lot of people feeling comfortable with that. Why? Is amen a magical phrase? 
Is, okay, God can't possibly hear my prayers, and he doesn't know when I'm done if I don't put amen there, because then God knows, oh, good, we're, you're done. I don't have to listen anymore to your life, right? That's not how it is at all. Amen's not a magic closing phrase that now God will listen and answer because I said the amen. In fact, you're like, well, isn't it in the Lord's Prayer, our Father, heart, and heaven, how be the kingdom come, will be done, on earth, and give us day, day, the bread, forgive us, the death, forgive us, these not temptations for, you know, blah, blah, for the kingdom of power forever. Amen. The Lord's Prayer tells us to do that. Except then you haven't read the Lord's Prayer because that part's not in it. <laughs> there's no amen in the Lord's Prayer. In fact, there's no your kingdom power forever and ever. Amen. That's not in there either. The whole last sentence of the Lord's Prayer that you've been chanting is not in the Bible. <laughs> like, what? Yes, it is. No. Read your Bible. Matthew and Luke are the two places the Lord's Prayer is listed. So we've created amen as this like mandatory prayer thing. There's all sorts of words we use in prayer. Like I have a friend who, who says, oh, daddy, I just want to talk to you right now. And I'm always like, oh, why are you saying daddy? Like, but that's the translation of Abba, father, as daddy. But who says daddy when they're talking to God? That seems so ugh, cringy and like informal to me. And like, man, you're definitely not that Christian, right? Like that's me fully judging the guy who said that. As I say, oh, yeah, at the end of my prayer, you know. Like, the things aren't bad. It's not bad that I, that I didn't wear shorts this morning. It's not bad to want your kids to say, like, hey, let, let's call them Pastor Sam because we love and want to honor them. By itself, it's not bad unless they become additions to godliness or we conflate them with being morally good. And so the guy who says, oh, yeah, at the end of prayer, and calls God Daddy and says Sam to the pastor, and he's going to a winery on Sunday, you know, or he's watching the service from the winery this Sunday, or, or wherever he is. Like, and you're like, well, that person, they're not really Christian. They've got, like, level one Christian, but there's really Christians who don't do those other things. If we start to say that, then we're exactly like the people that Paul's writing against to Titus. Titus was encouraged to address these people's wrong thinking. Here's what he says. Those people are thinking like that. Here's what he writes in Titus 1.11. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach and for the sake of dishonest gain. They must be silenced. Oh, man, we watch too many movies. That means you kill them, right? No, but that's not what he's talking about. When Titus finds these people uh, teaching what they ought not to, he's supposed to stop them from teaching that. But by, by silencing him, it means, uh, so this is a common phrase at that time, it means to silence them through argument, not violence or persecution or something bad. To silence them through correct teaching. And we just heard last week that the, uh, that the uh, leaders that were being set up had to be able to rebuke people and talk to them, but with the Bible, to be able to handle Scripture and to talk to them about it that way. So by silencing them, it's not by, you shut up, you know, like something like that. It's to show them through the Word why maybe they're in error. Titus had to train leaders, he, the leaders that he chose, to be able to silence people on issues by using the Scripture, not their opinions, not their own ideas, but the scriptures. And some of these people, even that he was dealing with, were motivated by, by actual gain. Paul's main idea for gain is actually financial gain. He said there were some people who were coming and teaching. These Jewish teachers would come and say, like, okay, you come, uh, we'll take an offering for me, and I'm going to teach. These people were charging people to listen to their lecture or their teaching, and so he said by dishonest gain, they're teaching false things. However, I think dishonest gain, even in a modern sense, could perhaps be that uh, there are folks that, that seek 
from sharing the gospel maybe an emotional rather than financial gain. Maybe they, by sharing the gospel, people will like them or they'll feel like important. Or maybe sometimes um, for people that share, maybe the problem is that they like it so much that they abuse their power. Especially, we've seen that in pastoral situations where, where power is important to them. And so the dishonest gain doesn't have to be just money. It might be a dishonest emotional gain or a dishonest power imbalance gain that people are interested in. And Paul is speaking against these folks. And he says this, dealing with those people in, in Titus 1.12, he says, one of Crete's own poets, he said it this way, this Epimenides wrote this. He said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. <laughs> and then he says, that saying's true. That's so messed up. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they'll be sound in the faith and they'll pay no attention to Jewish myths or to merely human commands of those who reject the truth. So the problem is even more difficult because of the general culture of Crete. So Crete, they were like, you know, I don't know how they would be, but they were like, you know, uh, had this stereotype about them. And Paul writes like, yeah, that stereotype is true. So they had a propensity for wrong thought, which is why it was so important for Titus to appoint leaders that will teach them right thought, and for Titus himself to be able to teach and approve what's good and what's from God, not from just what's culturally appropriate. If these congregations were left to themselves, it would just be like chaos and error, and they would become really messed up. Now, Paul didn't say to Titus, the Christians are liars, cheats, and gluttons. They have one of the worst reputations in all of the Roman Empire, and so you know what? Just skip them. <laughs> They're not worth the trouble. That's not what he said. He said, rather, I know how bad they are. Go out and change them through the truth of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit for God's glory. Because they're generally hardened character, they must be dealt with, he says, harshly. You've got to go out. This is a harsh word. You've got to go out and rebuke them, it says. And that, that's because of their generally hard cultural character. Now, I think it's important to know that different people require different tactics when you're talking to them, when they're rebuking them or silencing them or talking to them about the Bible. <clears throat> the way I correct a child is different than the way I would correct an adult. A teen boy is different than a grandmother. How I approach them if I'm going to rebuke them or talk to them about an error that they might be having. For a teen boy, you know, a teen boy needs to go out, play some video games together, have an ice cream, and then get smacked upside the back of his head. That's probably about it, right? That don't work for a grandma. She's not interested in maybe the ice cream, but not the others. And so we have different tactics for different people. And so uh, just because he says rebuke them harshly doesn't mean that that's the technique we should always use. It's, it's appropriate to the audience. In verse 15, he says, To the pure all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and don't believe, nothing is pure. So when Paul says to the pure, all things are pure, he doesn't mean things that are morally impure that we've been talking about. We're talking about the peripheral issues, the, the shorts, or for them, like eating food sacrificed to idols, or, or uh, bowing or sitting or standing at the right time, or, or whom you could marry within your society, these kind of things. That's what he's talking about. He said, for those that are pure, who are right in God, those things, they don't matter. 
But the person who is impure, like these people think, these legalists, they think everything is impure. In fact, there's almost nothing you could do that would ever please these people. And that's how legalism works. Even if you start to follow all the rules, they figure out other rules for you to follow. And then you've got to go to level three or level five. It's like that uh, Dianetics or whatever. You're always another level to get to in order to be a good Christian. I've said it before. Uh, I am like... Uh, in my history past, I am like a, a sin ninja, or more like a sin eagle eye. I could see sin happening like half a mile away. I have a sin smell. I'm like, mm, there's sin. This used to be me before uh, God totally changed my heart on the subject. But I, I used to see sin when there wasn't even any sin. That's how good I was. <laughs> but you know, that's not good, right? Like, I, I would see... Sin could come from that seven steps from the thing that you're doing, so you shouldn't do that thing. Like, oh man, talk about this crazy legalism. That is improper, and it's legalism. These same folks, they denied Christian basic and godly pleasures that weren't sinful and all, but they made up these extra rules. They told them they had to follow the Old Testament law when they had already, Jesus had already said, we're not, we, you're free from the law. That is the old covenant. I come to you and bring you a new covenant. Covenant means agreement. The old agreement between two parties was, you follow the law, you'll get blessing. You'll get me. They couldn't follow the law, so they didn't get God. Nobody got to heaven, so he said, that law didn't work. Let's get a new agreement. The new agreement is, you believe in Jesus and accept him as your Savior, and I will be your God forever, guaranteeing that, no longer conditional on your ability to do your half, because you can't do your half. You were never able to do your half. And so I give you unconditional goodness and grace by dying on the cross for all of your sins. And that's the new agreement. But these folks were trying to say, yeah, the new agreement's fine, but, but what we really need is some more rules. That way we know who's really Christian or who's just like base Christian. But the New Testament has nothing like that. Paul knew that if a Christian was walking in purity in the Lord, and if his, his heart was set on God and his moral things, that all those side issues, they don't matter. They're, they're not relevant. They're not sinful in any sense at all. But, but to the legalistic mind, those who are corrupted, nothing is pure. No one can ever get there. And the problem was that they're corrupt in unbelieving minds, not with the things that are involved. He says it here in, in the little later in that same verse. In fact, both their minds... And their consciences are corrupted. It's not, it's not the thing that's corrupted. It's not the food they were eating that was corrupted. It's not the marriage they were trying to go into that was corrupted. But rather it was their mind and conscience. This means that their theology or their thinking or their mind was wrong and their moral compass was off as well. See, one informs the other because they had wrong teaching. It's why right teaching is so important. And we're going to see that even in the end in just a, a couple of minutes here in the last couple of verses we're going to deal with today. So he's saying, do good in your thinking. You've got, to, you've got to get your mind right morally and hear what the Bible really says and what God really wants. Not worry about all the cultural or other things that you brought with you before you came into Christianity. And that will affect your conscience or your soul or your inner self. Here's what he says. He says, to, they, they claim to know God but by their actions, they deny him. They're detestable, they're disobedient, and they're unfit for doing anything good. Oh, man. So 
these difficult people Titus had to deal with, they were all the more difficult because they talked like Christians. He says, they claimed to know God. Their profession was all in order, but in works they deny him. So we can't go just by what a person says, but it has to be revealed in their actions as well. Now be careful. Be really careful with this verse because what actions does he have in mind? He doesn't have like act good and God will like you or, or follow these law. He just spoke against those things. What he has in mind is, is not non-biblical rules or attention to works, not grace, or denial that Jesus is enough, or, or teaching any of those kind of things. Now here's this really fine line of becoming a legalist, which we're preaching against as we talk about right actions. What does he mean by they need to show right actions? And we've got to be really careful that we don't say, well, wear long pants to honor God. Say Pastor Sam when you speak to the pastor. We've got to be really careful that we don't become the exact thing that we're learning about or preaching against right now. The more rules we make to be righteous, that's better though, right? Isn't it better just to make more rules so we can become more righteous? No. No. And the answer seems to actually be no. Making more rules isn't going to make you more righteous. It's going to make you obey rules rather than the intent of the rules. How easy is it for us to make rules and forget about grace completely? That's the natural lean of our hearts so that we can say there are haves and have-nots. You could do a certain amount of things where I feel comfortable and now you're on the in-group. We've got to be really careful of this even as Christians now. To obey with our actions means to embrace, to teach, to preach Jesus and Jesus alone. Only actions that are morally in line with God are the ones that are not in denial. So we're not talking about any of the peripherals or any of the, the rules or any of this kind of stuff. It's, it's, are you about Jesus and Jesus alone? Are you about making the morally right decision, even if it doesn't make sense to other people? Do good in your actions, but good according to God not according to society, to people, or to customs. Good, again, a morally correct action. Do good as a response to knowing God, not as a way to get into heaven, or to get God to like you more, or to be better than those around you. The only reason that I try to be morally good, that I am interested in, in moral issues, is because I have received Jesus first. By receiving Jesus, I am a Christian, and that is it. And my response to God is to try to morally follow him as best as I can, not about rules, but about actually what is good in life, what is, what, what is pleasing to God in my interactions with folks. Now, that's a huge distinction. One leads to freedom, and the other will lead to the slavery of legalism. If we think that we have to do a certain amount of things to be Christian, then that's going to be slavery and chains, and you'll then never do enough to be Christian. You become a Christian fully and freely by the grace of God. And then from that position... God starts to change your heart. 
not adding rules, just changing your heart. Finishes with this. You, however, talking to Titus, you must teach what's appropriate to sound doctrine. So he had talked about wrong teaching, and now he draws the complete, uh, uh, the contrast emphatically. He says, you, you got to teach what's according to sound doctrine. Teach what is good. But why come back to teaching? Because good actions arise from good teaching. We won't change our behavior if we don't see any problem with it. We won't change our decision-making process if it seems to be working for us. This is why teaching scripture is so important. As a believer, life is not about my ideas. It's not my passions or my desires. It's about God's. Teaching must have God at the center, not me, because the Bible has God at the center, not me. If you ever read the Bible and you're like, God, what do you want to teach me through the Bible? God says, I don't want to teach you anything. I want to reveal me to you. Because the Bible's not about you. If you're looking at the Bible, God, this book is for me, basic instructions before I leave earth or whatever that acronym for that is. It's not. The Bible is not about you. It's about God. And if, if we get it backwards, then we get the legalism backwards. It's got to be about God first, and that's it. And God, as I look at the scripture, I want to know about you. And when I know about you, that's going to cause me to want to be like you because I love you. It's not about, oh, what should I do next, God? No, he didn't write the Bible to tell you what to do next. Because then the Bible would be about you. But the Bible is not about you. It's about God, and it's not about your preferences. It's not about our cultural uh, leanings. It's not about our political leanings. It's about God and God alone. So teaching is important because it helps us discern deep-seated things that may not be from God but are ingrained in us from society. This is why our, I love this phrase of our church that we desire to be multi-ethnic but monocultural. Just the culture of God and Christ. That's it. The others are, are nice flavor. I love what culture, I, I love what ethnicity you're from. I love every face. I love all the colors. I, I love the differences in culture. But we just want to have one culture that's God's culture. And, and not allow our cultures to affect our Christianity in a negative way. So he says, to teach sound doctrine. God, uh, Paul means things which align properly with what God actually intended. To be morally right in our actions according to him, not according to me or somebody else. And so we search our Bible so that we can meet God and see what God would want for us. Looking to him and him alone. So he says, you need to teach what is good. So we're talking about do good, and you're talking, and you're teaching, and you're thinking, and your actions, but that moral kind of goodness, not based on rules, but on our response to God and his love, as a response to God and his compassion for us, his care and desire for righteousness, goodness which makes you more like him, and only like him. I don't want you to ever change and become more like the other Christians if it's just for the point of being like the Christians. Only in as much as they look like God. So I'd love for you to be like the Christians who are looking like God because they're trying to be like God. You can imitate them. That's fine. But don't just try to come and look like Christians or be like Christians or think that you have to follow some rules so that you can be more Christian. That isn't what the Bible teaches. It teaches God loves you. 
and you have a free gift of salvation. And, and once you have that, God will shape your heart to choose Him. Even when it goes against your culture, even when it goes against things that you thought you knew. And so we're going to close this morning, and uh, if we just stand together and we're going to close our service and worship to God, the one whom we fix our eyes on.